Glad you're here today, and I wanted to just say that the sermon title that's in your bulletin is actually not the message that I'm going to share today. Uh, the Lord changed my mind on Thursday or so, and I'll be sharing that message oh, at some point soon, but uh, this message I think is especially important given what we learn from mothers and what we learn uh, on Mother's Day weekend, remember each, each year. And I want to start in the book of Revelation, chapter 21. So if you have your Bible, turn there. It'll also be up on the screen. But Revelation, chapter 21, there's a really interesting detail about the, 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 new, the new Jerusalem, the holy city, heaven, the, what God is preparing for us. There's some interesting details about it. A lot of things are symbolic in the Bible about heaven and about the new Jerusalem. Some things are literal, and I think this is part of that literal, uh, deep, some of these literal details. And in Revelation chapter 21, there's some interesting details that we get. So Revelation 21.10 says, And he, this is an angel, carried me, and this is John, the disciple, away in the spirit to a great high mountain, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall, 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes, the sons of Israel, were inscribed. And on the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, and the south, three gates, the west, three gates. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the Lamb, of course, is a symbol for Jesus. And so, really interesting details here about heaven and the city that we're going to live in one day very soon. And it says there that, that on the foundations of the walls are inscribed or carved the names of the apostles. Did you notice that? That's interesting. You know, we do things like that even today and have for a long time. When you set a cornerstone in a building, you'll put the year and maybe the builder or whoever the building's dedicated to, you'll carve that into the the foundation, well, into the foundation of the holy city is the names of the apostles. And you might be wondering, well, why did God do that? Why has God chosen to put the apostles' names, and also says the names of the sons of Israel, and by the way, Israel is a name for, another name for Jacob. And so Jacob's sons became the children of Israel, since his name was changed to Israel, and what we're, what we're finding, what I believe about the reason for why these names are there is that God did a fantastically powerful and miraculous work through Jacob's sons and also the 12 disciples. A work so powerful and so great that it is a fantastic and amazing witness to the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Are you interested? Hopefully. What is this sign? What work did God do in Israel's sons and in the disciples? What did he exactly do? Well, we need to go back to the very beginning of time to understand this work that he's trying to do. And as we go back to the beginning of time, I want to bring up a very theological word that you hear preachers use a lot, reconciliation. Now, when we use the word reconciliation in our human vernacular, usually it's connected to the idea that there's been a conflict. There's two parties at odds with each other. 
And reconciliation is when these two conflicting parties come back together. Isn't that the way we normally understand it? Sure, and that's, that's a perfectly fine way of defining it. But biblical rec- reconciliation is a lot more than that. Biblical reconciliation is about making one human being love another human being, not for selfish means, but for the sake of the other person. You heard me talk about, and it was last week or the week before, that uh, when we talk about loving our neighbor, usually we don't love our neighbor for their sake, we love them for our sake. What do I mean by that? Well, we get along with a fellow member at church because if we get along with that person at church, it makes our own church experience more pleasurable, doesn't it? You get along with your neighbor in, on your street because, you know, if the two of you get along, it's really great. If you fight with your neighbor, it's not a very good living experience, is it? So usually we love someone for our sake, not necessarily for their sake. But true biblical reconciliation, that the work that God wants to do in all of us, allows us to love people for their sake and not for ours. I don't know about you, but when I really think about the ramifications of loving someone for their sake, I realize that God has a lot of work to do in me. Any of you else, any else, anyone else out there honest enough to be able to acknowledge that? It's really easy to love people for our own sake, but it's very hard to love them for their sake. And yet, that's what the Lord says he wants to do. And that's why he calls us new creations in Christ. He's transforming us. And, you know, all the way back at the beginning, in Genesis chapter 3, we see the fall of mankind, when sin entered into the world. Now, we were made in the image of God. And God's character, God's nature, is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And and that relationship they have there is perfect. It's totally unified. Each lives for the the betterment of the other and and its perfect love and connection. It's a, a wonderful relationship. And God, I believe, instilled that same kind of connection and intimacy into the human race. We were meant to have the same kind of connection as the Godhead has. But when sin entered, something happened. We all started living for ourselves. We see it right in the beginning. When Adam sins, what does he do? He blames Eve, doesn't he? God comes down not to condemn Adam, not to, to, to force just judgment on him, but to save him, to show him the plan of salvation. And he says, Adam, what have you done? And Adam says, well, that woman you gave me. You see, Adam couldn't imagine living without Eve before this, so much so that he sinned against the Lord and ate that fruit. But he couldn't imagine living without Eve so much. And now that sin has entered his heart, now that he's become selfish, now Eve becomes a means to an end. And that's usually the way many of our human relationships are. People are a means to an end. They're objects, they're things that we sort of use in order to make our lives better. And that's what Adam does with Eve. He uses her to displace the blame. But if you notice, if you catch it, there's another, there's another person that Adam is subtly blaming. Who is it? It's God, yeah. That woman you gave me. So God, it's not my fault one way or another. Either it's her fault or it's your fault, but you know, I'm sort of innocent in this circumstance. And then Eve tries to displace the blame on the serpent, and the blame goes around. And so 
the human relationship was severed. That intimacy was severed. And, you know, the word that we also like to use in connection with what Jesus has done for us is atonement. And that's this big, heavy theological word. But the easiest way to understand the word atonement is to break it down, break the word down itself into several words. At one meant. The state of being at one. Does that make sense to everybody? Yes or no? At one. What Jesus has done is he's brought us at one with the Father. He's restored that relationship. But the power of the gospel is that it also can reconcile us to one another, bring us at one with each other. In essence, restoring the types of relationships that were lost in the human family when sin entered. Are you with me? And that's good news, isn't it? But the thing about it is, this cannot happen naturally for us. Because with natural sinful hearts, the way we're made, the way we're brought up, the way we're educated, the world that we live in teaches us only to live for ourselves. And as we're only living for ourselves, what do we do? We love people, but not for their sake. We love them for our own sake. And so how does God change this cycle of selfishness? Well, Paul has something to say about that. He's, he go, he, let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul was transformed himself, and he went through this process on his own. In his own way, he lived for himself, he kept the law, he thought everyone should live as he lived because his way was best and that if they only lived as he lived, then God would gift the world with the Messiah and all wrongs would be right if he could only live perfectly enough and God's people could live perfectly enough. Then he went through a trans transformation. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 16 says, From now on, therefore... We regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Isn't that good news? Total transformation, rebirth, a resurrection of sorts. That's what Paul's talking about. We shouldn't look at each other, especially those of us that are in the church, we shouldn't look at each other as if we're living according to selfish ways. We need to look at each other as transformed new creations. Look at ourselves that way. Part of the family of God. And then it goes on, verse 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. I love that. What did we do in order to bring reconciliation to God? What does it say? What did that say? Who through Christ reconciled us to himself. So what did we do in order to bring reconciliation? Nothing. We didn't do anything. God reconciled us to himself. Isn't that incredible? He restored the relationship without us doing anything about it. That's incredible. Truly incredible. And then it goes on. It says, and he has given to us the ministry of what? Reconciliation. He's given us, us that ministry as well. We'll talk about what that means here in just a second. It says in verse um, 
Let's see, where did I leave off? Somebody tell me. 18, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's such good news, isn't it? A new creation in Christ. He took upon himself the sins of the world. He took upon himself uh, the severed relationship and he restored it. And the power of what he has done allows us to be restored to one another as well. Wouldn't it be nice if we all could live to love for the sake of somebody else, for everyone else? That's what heaven's going to be like. A place where we don't have to worry about defending ourselves. A place where we can love with full open arms. And the Bible's saying that as new creations, we can learn to love that way too. And I believe that the, the names of the disciples or the apostles are going to be written on the foundations of the New Jerusalem, the Holy City, because they are the ultimate example of what the gospel can do in someone's life. They are a shining, beautiful example, a living, breathing example of the change that can come. And I'm going to demonstrate this to you today because we're going to take a look at who these guys were. And I think most of us don't really grasp who they actually were and how amazing it was that God was, that Jesus was actually even, even able to keep them in the same room without literally killing each other. And I'm not exaggerating about that. It's a miracle that God, that Jesus could even keep them in the same room without killing each other let alone give up a lot of themselves and change the world. Let's look at, let's look at these guys for a second. So, um, 12 disciples, he called 12. The first, when we think of the disciples, is a man by the name of Simon Peter, right? Um, by the way, when somebody has more than one name, uh, one name is usually a Greek name, the other one is a Hebrew name. So don't get too confused. Why do they have different names? Well, it's just a different language sometimes. Simon Peter, and most of us or many of us know that by profession he was what? A fisherman, that's right. He was a fisherman. He was a man of action. He was Josephus, a historian that lived about, this, about the time period of, of uh, Peter or thereabouts says this about people that lived in Galilee, which is where Peter was from. They were ever fond of innovation. And by innovation, Josephus means the next thing. So they were always looking for the next movement, the next leader, the next one to start the newest fad or the newest thing. Especially because they delighted in sedition. Now, this is the guy that was in the inner circle of Jesus. Are you with me? This is the guy that some Christians say was the leader of the disciples and of the church. And he came from a place 
And he was a man who delighted in sedition. Is that a good leader? Is that the person you would pick to change the world with? Sedition? He delighted in sedition. He, they were always ready to follow an insurrection in Galilee. Remember, yeah, they had the issue of the Romans oppressing the, the Jews, and they thought that it was their, their position that they should be the highest uh, race in the entire world. And uh, they, you know, they were looking for the leader to lead them out of it. So they were quick to follow anyone who was willing to lead an insurrection, which in some of you may not know this, but uh, Barabbas, remember Barabbas at the trial of Jesus? The people choose Barabbas and not Jesus to free. Barabbas, you know what Barabbas' first name was? It was Jesus. His name was Jesus Barabbas. And Barabbas was the leader of an insurrection. And so the people chose Barabbas, a murderer and an insurrectionist, over the Savior of the world. These were the people of Galilee. They were known to have a quick temper. They loved arguing. But Josephus also says they were very chivalrous. So in other words, they were quick to, to protect or stand up and do what's right or to open the door, to pull out a chair. We see this in Peter's life when he's the first one to draw the sword and he defends Jesus by cutting the ear off from the soldier. He, they, were very, they were known to be very chivalrous. They were more anxious for honor than gain. So often they were in it for their own, their own uh, legend. Are you with me? They're in it for their own legend rather than the ultimate good. They were emotional, and the Talmud says that they were extremely loyal people. Very loyal so this is the Peter, this is the, the Simon Peter, the leader of the disciples, the one who's going to lead the movement to change the world, fond of the newest movement, delighted in sedition, always ready to follow insurrection. He had a quick temper. He loved to argue. He was very chivalrous, but mostly for the fact that he liked it because it would add to his, his resume of what a great guy he was. He was more anxious for honor than gain, emotional and very loyal. Okay, so that's one guy. Now, try to build a team. You know, any coach will tell you that you have to have good team chemistry, right? How do you have any good team chemistry with a guy like that? Yikes. Okay, so let's look at the next guy. James the Elder. There were two Jameses in the disciples. Well, this is James the Elder. Uh, and by the way, the, the, the last name of James meant son of thunder. Jesus gave them this name. His James' brother was John. And we know that James and John both were fishermen, but they came from the upper class. They came from the upper class, so they were uh, probably educated, but they are known to have had explosive tempers. Okay. So this is just the first three guys here. So you have Peter, in the way we describe Peter, and now you're adding James and John with explosive tempers for the th first three disciples. How's our team looking so far? Explosive tempers. Um, and we know 
that James and John, their mother, constantly was trying to make sure that they would have a really great high position in the kingdom. So they had one of these you know, soccer moms or little league dads that says, you know, my son should be playing in this position and they should always bat first because they're the best and blah, blah, blah. You know, you know those parents. Maybe you're one of them. And so she thought that they were the best and, and you can imagine the ego that they had. You can see it in some of these kids whose parents think that their children's just, child is just the best thing since sliced bread. And you can see their ego rise. So that's James and John. And they had a quick temper. They were ambitious. They, actually, the, the biblical historian that I was reading says explosive temper. Explosive temper. They were intolerant. There's no other term to use other than the fact that first century Jews were racists. There is no other word. They were flat out absolute racists. And so they believed that the Jewish nation, the Jewish people, were the chosen people, and everybody else was a dog or some other derogatory word. They were. They were I mean, they fit the definition of racist. And so they're from the upper class, and they obviously felt superior to everybody else. So that's the first three. And then we come to Andrew, and Andrew gives us a little bit of a respite. Andrew is Peter's brother. And if you're, if, if you're Peter's brother, you're either going to have a, a, a more calm personality or there's going to be a lot of fighting in that house. So Andrew, is he first followed John the Baptist, and I have a feeling that John the Baptist taught him a lot of things about being a disciple and following the Lord. But Andrew seems to be pretty optimistic. He brought a lot of other people to Jesus. He brought some of the other disciples to Jesus. He would bring people in crowds to Jesus. He brought a lot of other people. So, so Andrew, all right, finally we got, we got somebody that's going to help our team, right? Not try to take over and things. But then, but then we get to Nathaniel or Bartholomew. Here's a really interesting thing about Nathaniel. I find it really interesting. Nathaniel is the only disciple that comes from noble bloodline. Nathaniel's ancestry can be traced back to Absalom's mother. Absalom was the son of King Solomon. And his mother was in the ancestry of Nathaniel. So he's the only one that comes from noble blood. And he was well-educated well-read, and he knew the scriptures. So here's this man of nobility. He's well-read. He's well-educated. He might be wealthy. We're not entirely sure. But when Philip comes to try and ask him to follow Jesus with him, what does he say about Jesus when he learns that he's from Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? So here's the thing, and this reveals something to us about the Jewish nation. Not only were they racist for other people groups, they're also racist within their own people. We see this in some of the tribal nations of the world. 
They, they come from the same part of the world, but if you're not part of the right tribe, there's genocide and all kinds of other things that happen in our world. So this is Nathaniel. He's, he thinks he's superior. He's judging Jesus because he doesn't come from the right place. He's, he comes from noble blood. And then you have James and John, who are wealthy. They're not nobility, but they're wealthy. And they think they should have first place in the kingdom. And then you have Simon Peter with all of his quirks. Who wants to coach this team? Guess what? It gets worse. It gets a lot worse. James the Younger is the author of the book of James in the New Testament. And through that and other Bible scholars, we find that he has a very strong and fiery personality. If you read the book of James, the book of James, Martin Luther didn't even like because he couldn't see the gospel in it. It's, it's a lot of law and obedience and discipleship. And Luther, because he was coming out of a very legalistic Catholic mindset, he came out of that and, and read the book of James and was like, I can't, I can't make heads or tails of this thing. But James was rigid. He was uh, also probably a fiery personality. Some Bible scholars, and boy, what a twist this would be if this is true. Some Bible scholars say that James the Younger was actually the brother of Matthew. And that adds a whole nother layer to all of this if that part is true. And we'll get back to that here in just a second. Oh, let's go to number seven. It's Judas. And by the way, something that's interesting, I find interesting, is that the name Judas is the same name as Jude and Judah. All right? So there were actually more than one Judas in the disciples because we have a, a Jude. But uh, Ju Judas came from Judah near Jericho. He was not a Galilean, but the people that he came from were known to be violent nationalists. Another term for a violent nationalist is what? A terrorist. Judas came from a people who were terrorists. Think ISIS. And that's not an exaggeration. Because the, the Jews were so impassioned about being delivered from the power of the Romans that they frequently resorted to violence. And, and we see this in the life of Judas, that his ambition and his covetousness did not allow him to see Jesus as he really was. So there's Judas. Well, let's go to the other Judas, or Jude, or another name is Thaddeus. Maybe you've heard of Thaddeus before. This is James the Younger's brother. In some places, he's called Judas. <laughs> Judas the Zealot. You know what a zealot was in the first century? Another type of terrorist. Just led by a different party. So this is not an exaggeration. So in Judas, the, the, the treasurer, you have Al-Qaeda. 
in Jude, you have ISIS. This is not an exaggeration. Look at these people. Look at these guys. And then you have Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector. So think about this. Okay. To add a tax collector would be like saying you put Bill Gates in the same room as the leader of Al-Qaeda. You know the goal of Al-Qaeda is to take down capitalism, right? Now, Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos or whoever who have made their money and they're living in their life on capitalism, you have those two men in the same room. That's the kind of ideology that you have in these disciples. Because Matthew, Matthew was a tax collector. And tax collectors were Jews collecting taxes for the Romans. But it gets worse. The reason that it gets worse is because tax collectors were known as crooked loan sharks. Because what would happen is the Romans would assess a property or assess a person's uh, assets, and they would come to the tax collector and say, okay, this person owes us X amount of money. But before the person was would be known, made known to the person, the tax collector would say, your bill is far above and beyond anything you can pay right now. So the tax collector would loan the person money at an extremely high interest rate and pocket the difference. Think Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus. That's Levi, Matthew. That's Matthew, the disciple. The first author of the first gospel. So you have several terrorists that hate Rome so much they're willing to murder and terrorize in the same room as a man who has gotten wealthy off from Jews on behalf of the Romans. The power of the gospel, my friends. The power of the presence of Jesus in somebody's life. Philip was warm but somewhat pessimistic. He was the guy that said, we need to feed all these people, but I don't know how we're going to do it. Kind of pessimistic. We don't know too much about Philip. And then we have Simon the Zealot, another terrorist. He was crazed with hatred for the Romans. He was devoted to the law and would have had a bitter, bitter hatred for Matthew. So that's at least four and probably Peter didn't like Matthew either. Because Peter's having to pay his taxes. Anybody that had to pay taxes would have hated a tax collector. Thomas, number 12, pessimistic, practical, doubting. Oh, Jesus rose? All right, I'll believe it when I see it. <laughs> That's the 12 disciples. That's what Jesus had to work with. Isn't it incredible? 
But it's those guys that changed the world. Now, what did it take? What did it take? They had to be willing to give up things about themselves. Isn't that true? They had to be willing to give some things up. And usually when we think about giving things up for Jesus, we think, okay, leaving my home. You know, Peter had a wife, and he had to leave his wife and, and, and go follow Jesus. And they often didn't have a place to sleep. They'd sleep outside, and sometimes I'm sure they were hungry, and they're living in tents. And yeah, okay, you have to, to give up physical, you know, things that make you comfortable. But to take a terrorist and put them in the same room as a tax collector, you have to be willing to give things up about yourself. You have to be willing to look at Jesus and see something so giving, so selfless, so loving, and say, that's what I should be like. So much that he left the glories of heaven, and that's what they find out later, he left heaven and gave up everything, not for his own sake, because it didn't get him anything but pain and death. He left heaven for their sake. You see, there's something transformative when you see Jesus in that light, that he's the perfect example of what happens when God shows us his true character, that he came for our sake and not his. And that's why the Bible says that we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. This ability to empty ourselves, to give things up about ourselves for other people so that they can see the gospel like the disciples did when they looked at Jesus. And that's why we're called new creations, because that doesn't come naturally, does it? But friends, we're living in a world right now that teaches us to cover, duck and cover, to defend ourselves to go on the offensive, to not be willing to listen, to defend our opinions and our ideas and our thoughts and our feelings, to hear people crying out for injustice and, and racial issues and say, ah, no, that doesn't exist, I'm not going to listen to that. To defend our politics and bring it into the church, to, to, to duck and cover with our own opinions. That's the world. That's the last days. That's the challenge of the last days. The challenge of the last days for the believer teaches us to harden to protect ourselves. But what Jesus wants us to do is to open up our hearts so he can show us the things that we need to give up to him. Yeah, sometimes it is material stuff. Sometimes it's our time you know, it used to be the most important thing in, in the, the life of a believer was what happened at the church. Now you'd be lucky if you can get people out to do things for the church. But it's also what we're willing to give up to love someone for their sake. The ideologies, the thoughts, the feelings, the, the defensiveness, the selfishness, the what is it? The tradition. I'll tell you a funny story. I, I wore my other pair of Jordans last Sabbath. 
And uh, a lady in the foyer said to me, you know, I don't really like sneakers. And I thought, well, I don't really like hats. What's the difference? The difference is what we like, right? Where we come from. What we think is acceptable. And that's kind of a silly example. But the fact of the matter is, that's the kind of stuff. And there's various degrees of how serious it is, but that's the kind of stuff we have to be willing to open our hearts and say, Lord, what are the rough edges? What are the things that I have to hold on to that are just me? What are my areas of being a terrorist? What are my areas of being uh, selfish? What are my areas of having my own agenda or thinking myself better than anybody else? You know, you wouldn't be able to live with yourself if you outwardly believe that you're better than other people. Most people who think they're better than other people don't know that they think they're better than other people. Which is why God wants us to look at the example of Jesus. And this is where we're going to close. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 1. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 1. Philippians 2, 1. When you're there, say amen. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. If there could be a definition of loving someone for their sake, I think that's it. Counting someone more significant than yourself. If the world could keep that in mind right now, how would it change our social media posts? How would it change our ideology on politics? How would it change the way we treat each other here? Because, you know, we can all have a really nice church without loving people for, our, for their sake. You know, we can, can't we? We can all come in. Hi, happy Sabbath. Welcome, here's a bulletin. Oh, it's nice to see you. We can do that, can't we? Oh, come in, come have lunch. But you know, many times we do those things simply because it makes it a more pleasant place for me to be. But that's not true love. That's not counting someone more significant than yourself. It's not loving them for their sake. It's loving them for our sake. What if everyone lived by the mantra that we believe that everyone else is more significant than ourselves? Their thoughts, their feelings, their actions, their, their worries, their fears, their traditions, their customs. I'll tell you a perfect example, and I promise I'm going to close. But back in Pennsylvania, I was in charge of, of uh, church planting, but I was also in charge of helping with some revitalization of some dying churches. And uh, in one part of Pennsylvania, there was a church that was a certain ethnicity, predominantly a uh, certain ethnicity. 
and it's a particular ethnicity that loves things exactly the way their culture does it. We got to sing this way, and the elder has to talk for this long, the pastor has to preach for that long, and we got to we got to go to church for this long. I mean, it was, it was they're very rigid. The problem was the community around this church was not that ethnicity at all. The church did not match the culture that was around them at all. And so we went into that church and we talked about some of the, the cultural differences and some of the, um, you know, the ideologies of the culture of the people that were living around this church and why they think this way and why certain aspects of certain types of worship services wouldn't connect and certain types of preaching wouldn't connect. And they listened. And one guy stood up to me, stood up during the seminar, and he was perfectly sincere. And you know what he said to me? Why do we have to change? Why can't they get on the board with what get on board with what God is doing? The community that doesn't know God is supposed to get on board with what God is doing because he thought his culture was doing it God's way. You know what? They voted as a church board not to change anything. So you know what we as a conference said? Okay. We can't help you anymore. Your church is going to plateau and die. But we're going to have to plant a church to reach this community. You see... It's not that we know we're being outwardly selfish. Many times we think we're doing the will of the Lord. Terrorists, zealots in Jesus' day thought they were doing the will of the Lord. Paul thought he was doing the will of the Lord as he was killing Christians. It's those times when we are not willing to love someone and regard them as more significant than ourselves, our customs, our ideologies, our policies, our politics, our thinking, when we're not willing to regard them more significant than ourselves, we become like that church that said, we're not going to change. We don't care whether we reach that community or not. We're going to do it like we want to do it. And so we need the, the example of Jesus, and it says, let each of you, verse 4, let each of you look not only out for his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. What did Jesus stand to gain by leaving heaven? Nothing. But do you know why he did it? Because he regarded us as more significant than himself. And that's the example that Jesus lived with every day in the presence of those disciples. And as they learned from him, and as they opened up their hearts, it changed the hearts of terrorists. It changed the hearts of tax collectors. It changed the hearts of people that thought they were special because they came from noble blood or special because they had more money than the rest. 
It changed the hearts of these guys. That's just a mess. That's just a raging dumpster fire. I mean, those disciples that, I mean, who's choosing those guys? And then the women that came to follow were prostitutes and all sorts of other things. But you know what? The gospel changes people. It makes us a new creation. It changes us. And that's how we begin to live as a church when we begin to see other, others as more significant than ourselves. And we want unity and we want all these things. Well, this is why the disciples' names are going to be carved on the foundations of the holy city because they are a billboard. They are a testimony. They are a commercial. They are a instructional video on the power of the gospel in the life of messed up men. And you know what? This weekend, more than any other, we should remember what it means to, to regard other people more significant than themselves. I have to talk about my wife. It is Mother's Day, after all. By the way, guys, you have you know, less than 24 hours to get something if you haven't yet. But every time, four kids. Kelly had... Four kids, no pain drugs in any of the four. Yeah. And uh, every time she'd go into labor, you know what she'd say to me? Dustin, you know that if there's ever a decision where it comes down to saving my life or saving the baby's life, you save the baby. And you know, mothers, it's a, it's a living example of living to give. You give up your body, you give up your resources, you give up yourself for the sake of someone else. And so this weekend of any weekend, if we honor our mothers, we have to honor them that way. They are a living, breathing example of what it means to regard others more than themselves. I want a church like that, don't you? I want to be a witness like that in this world. He's a person who regarded other people over himself. I want a depth of unity in this church like that. Not just a high, happy Sabbath, but a high, I love you. How can I help you today? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you today. Lord, we, we admit we're scared. We're pressured. We're pressed into looking out for ourselves. Lord, this world's scary. It's trying. It's taxing. And, and Lord, we just... We want to collapse in on ourselves and just duck and cover and, and go on the offensive and attack and chase people away. But Lord, those disciples had a different experience when they were in the presence of Jesus. Their hearts opened and they gave things up. 
Lord, help us to be able to give things up about ourselves so that we can truly know what it means to regard someone else as more important than ourselves. Lord, take us through that hard work. Make us a church and a witness to this community of what it means to love someone more than we love ourselves. We thank you and we praise you. We thank you for our Savior and for our mothers this weekend. In Jesus' name.